Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. To a very familiar story in the Bible, the one who controls the storm. But before we turn to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, let me invite you to turn to Psalm 107. Psalm 107, verses 23 through 32. Because there we find, in essence, an Old Testament poetic commentary, if you like, on Jesus controlling the storm and calming the sea. It's a beautiful psalm that celebrates the goodness of God and his great works of deliverance. And in light of what we're going to study this evening, it is appropriate to read verses 23 through 32. You can almost hear these words as perhaps the prayer that... uh, might have been voiced by the disciples on the night that they found themselves in this stormy gale. Hear the word of the Lord. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. What an apt description of the disciples, as we will see in just a moment. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Now with that, then, as an Old Testament background, listen to Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through verse 41, which will bring our study of chapter 4 to a close. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, and this is the key to understanding these verses, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? I had us read Psalm 107 first because in many ways it is almost prophetic of the story that we find here in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus is with his disciples one evening on the Sea of Galilee. They also point these verses as well as Psalm 107 to the inescapable truth to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see that Jesus is indeed the God of Psalm 107 who, as verse 29 said, 
calms the storm so that the waves are still. Now, we have been seeing already in Mark chapter 4 a series of Jesus' teachings related to a number of parables. Now we're going to shift away from what he says to what he is able to do. And there are going to be a number of demonstrations at the end of chapter 4 and all the way through chapter 5 of his power as a great miracle worker. We're going to see tonight that he has authority over nature. That is chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. We will see next week that he has authority over the demons in the story of the gathering demoniac in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. We will then see that he has authority over sickness in chapter 5, verses 25 through 34, when he heals a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And then we will also see that he has authority over death as he raises the daughter of Jairus back from the dead in chapter 5, verse 21 through 24, and then jumping over uh, the story of the woman to chapter 5, verses 35 through 43. So the first of these miracle stories is Jesus stilling the storm on the sea here in chapter 4. And as you look at this story, it is noteworthy to see that it is marked by, I believe, marvelous and detailed historical accuracy. This is not mythology. Uh, this is not make-believe. In fact, the, the detail of the story is, uh, leaves us with, with no other conclusion to draw than some eyewitness must have been relaying this story to uh, the gospel writer Mark. And I believe, of course, the, uh, the person doing this is uh, the Apostle Peter, who is the eyewitness uh, apostolic source behind our second gospel. For example, Mark notes that whoever told him this remembered the time of day. It was evening. Chapter 4, verse 35. He remembers the cushion in the boat where Jesus lay. Chapter 4, verse 38. He knows that Jesus is in the stern, the place where he slept. Also in verse 38. He notes, and there's really no theological significance to this at all, that there were other boats with them in verse 36 as well. In addition to that, there is a less than flattering depiction of the disciples in this particular story. This is not the kind of thing that a later writer would make up. You see, sometimes more liberal scholars will argue that our Gospels are mythology. And, of course, what they will say is, well, they were written many, many years after the time of Jesus, and they were written by uh, those uh, that had joined to the early church. And, of course, the early church revered the apostles. They looked up to them. They admired them. Well... If that is indeed the case, then why in the world would they make the, the, the apostles look like such fools in this story? I mean, they are men who have no faith. They are men who are fearful. In spite of the fact that they have seen already Jesus do a number of miracles, they do not come off looking very good in this particular story. In fact, as we will see next week, if you want to find out who Jesus really is, don't ask the disciples. They almost always get it wrong early in the gospel. Ask the demons, because the demons always get it right. And so if you're making this type of thing up, that's just not the way that you would tell this story. Now, what I think is important for us to see as we begin to move into these verses is that God is in complete control. God is the one who orchestrates this event in the lives of disciples for the purpose of increasing their faith, as well as helping them clarify the identity, as it says there in verse 41, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Of course, what he wants them to understand in the conclusion he wants them and us to draw is that he is God. 
And of course, with God, as Luke 137 tells us, there is nothing that is impossible. Now, before we walk into this text, let me make an observation. Few texts have been more poorly interpreted than this particular text. A moment ago, David appropriately alluded in his prayer that Jesus is the one who can calm the storms in our lives. And he certainly can. But that's not what this story is really about. This story is about increasing their faith. This story is about helping them overcome their fear. And again, the key to the whole story is found in verse 41. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And, of course, the answer is he is the sovereign Lord God who is all-powerful that demons already recognize as Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, and also the one that we should recognize as the same. Now, as we walk through this particular passage, there are six observations that I want us to make uh, that are of a very theological as well as a very practical uh, import in your life and mine as we understand the one who controls the storm and therefore the one who can tr- control anything that comes into our lives as well. So number one, God is working in the everyday circumstances of uh, our lives. Verse 35 by, begins by telling us, on that day. So it is the same day in which Jesus has been doing this extraordinary, extensive teaching ministry in parables. He probably started early. He talked throughout the day. But like anyone else, he is now tired. Uh, he needs to rest. Evening has come. So on that same day when he taught all these parables, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And so Jesus says to the twelve, it's time to get away. It's time to get some rest. There's nothing unusual about this. There's nothing extraordinary about this. So he says, let's get in the boat. Let's go across to the other side. Verse 35. Verse 36, he in essence says goodbye, leaving the crowd. They took him with them in the boat just as he was. And then it says also that they're heading to the other direction, which we will find out next week in chapter 5, is the country of the Gerizines, where he will encounter the Gadarene demoniac, the man possessed with multiple demons. But also note, and again, there's no theological significance whatsoever. It says there in verse 36, other boats were with him. In other words, there's a flotilla of boats that are accompanying Jesus as he goes across the Sea of Galilee, which indicates even at night, even after a full day of teaching, he still cannot completely get away from those who are following him. Well, once he is in the boat, because he has had a full day, I wonder if like in other instances that we've seen, he may not have had anything to eat. He is Exhausted, He is wore out. And so the text says in verse 36, he goes over to the other side and a great windstorm, verse 37, arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling up. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Everything changes in verse 37. Suddenly everything gets turned upside down for the disciples. They've had a busy day of teaching. They've been busy doing the work of the Lord. They certainly deserve a quiet trip across the Sea of Galilee. But that is anything but what happens. Note, first of all, it says a great windstorm arose. That word, by the way, is sometimes used in the ancient world for hurricane-type winds. In other words, this was not a, a normal storm. This was abnormal. 
Uh, this was beyond the norm. This was something that they had not experienced before. In fact, the details are given. The waves were breaking into the boat. And again, the boat was already filling. Now, one cannot help but reflect when they hear this and think back to another story of a group of men, a group of seasoned sailors caught in a storm, and that is the story of Jonah. In fact, there are many that have noted a number of parallels in the book of Jonah, chapter 1, and what we read here in Mark, chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. You've got uh, sailors who are experienced. You've got fishermen who are experienced. But suddenly they find themselves in a storm unlike anything they had ever experienced before. Now, there's one thing I want you to see that I think is very important at this stage of the story. Who led them to get in the boat and who led them to go across the Sea of Galilee? Jesus did. This whole thing was divinely initiated by Jesus. It was he who said, it's time to get away, and it is he who said, let's go to the other side. In other words, it was Jesus who led them into the storm. You say, Jesus leads us into storms. If it's for our benefit, he will. If it's for our maturing, he will. If it's to increase our faith, he will. If it's to help us understand more clearly just who he is and what he can do, I have to say, praise God for the storms. The fact of the matter is, we learn things in the storm we never learn in the calm. There are things we learn flat on our back that we never learn when we're upright and everything is going well. Our best spiritual lessons are not discovered on the mountaintop. They're discovered we're in the valley we have no hope but to look up, and if God doesn't step in and deliver us, we will not be saved. So it was a normal evening, a normal boat ride, normal men, but suddenly they find themselves in an abnormal storm and a severe crisis. It was not accidental. Uh, it might <clears throat> have been a surprise to them. <clears throat> it was not a surprise to God. And so how can we apply this before we move on? We should not be surprised when we get surprised. Uh, they may catch us off guard, but they don't catch God off guard. Uh, these type of events in our lives are divine appointments whereby God is working in the everyday circumstances of our lives to reveal who he is, to teach us who we are, and to teach us who we need. In other words, trials... Tribulation, difficulties, th those desperate moments are divinely intended by God for him to do his greatest work of education in our lives. You see, God often brings us into circumstances to, to bring us to the end of ourselves. And again, I confess I need those moments. As I get older and live longer and uh, hopefully become a bit wiser, if I'm not careful, I become more self-sufficient. Uh, I become more adept at coming up with a game plan to get myself out of a bad situation than dropping to my knees and begging God to get me out of a bad situation. We all face those temptations, don't we? And so God brings us to the end of ourselves so that he then can drive us to him and him alone as our Savior and our Rescuer. In other words, what he does here physically for the twelve, he will do for you and me spiritually when we flee to him and when we trust him and when we turn to him. And God is at work 
in the everyday circumstances of our lives to reveal himself to us as the all-sufficient one. Now, second lesson. Jesus is human apart from sin. Verse 38 says, during the storm, as the, the wind arose and the waves were breaking and the boat was filling, verse 38, he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Now, let's enter into Theology 101 for just a moment. The Bible is crystal clear, and the church has always believed from its early inception that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He is 100% God he is 100% man, two natures, united in one person. That's why we often refer to him, I think, accurately as the God-man. Now, there's one qualification we need to note in terms of his humanity. He is human, but he had no sin. In other words, not only did he not commit a sin, he did not even have a sin nature. In other words, sometimes people will say, well, then what kind of human nature did he have? If, if he did not have a sin nature, then he's not fully human. Oh, I beg to differ. Sometimes it is said uh, to sin is human. That's not true. Adam and Eve were sinless before they sinned. No, to sin is fallen humanity. When you and I are glorified in heaven, will we still be human? Yes, but we will not sin. And so Jesus is fully human, but he did not commit even a single sin, for had he done so, he would need a Savior. And secondly, he did not have a sin nature. His nature was like that of Adam and Eve before Genesis 3, when they plunged the world into the fall. Two texts in particular make this crystal clear. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake... He, that is the Father, made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Some have referred to 2 Corinthians 5.21 as the great exchange. He took from us what we had, our sin, and he gave to us what he had, perfect righteousness. I would say, what a deal. What a deal. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. But again, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And what is so beautiful about the story of Jesus stilling the storm is that his humanity and his deity are put on display in this story. But it is his humanity that really stands out here in verse 38. The text says, amazingly, astonishingly, he is in the stern of the boat, fast asleep on a cushion. And again, this just tips us off to the fact that Jesus, like any human, got tired and he needed to rest. In fact, he needed to sleep. By the way, this is the only time in the Bible that we read of Jesus sleeping. I believe he slept like anyone else, though perhaps not as much as some, but he needed to sleep just like you and I need to sleep. But when you look at the Bible, it is very clear that he was in all ways human apart from sin. Matthew chapter 4 verse 2, he got hungry. After 40 days of fasting and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
If you go back and look at Mark chapter 3, verse 5, he got angry. If you look at John eleven thirty five, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And of course, when you look to the crucifixion in all the Gospels, he died. So he slept, he got hungry, he got angry, he cried, and he died. And evidently, the day had been so exhausting, he quickly fell asleep and he slept right on through the storm. I say playfully, Jesus must have had his sound machine set on waves that evening, and so it just put him to sleep, and he stayed asleep right on through the storm. But there's something else I think we need to take note of. Why could he sleep through a storm like this? You say, well, he was exhausted, and I think that's part of it. At the same time, I think he could sleep like a baby, although that's not always the best way to say it is that I know some babies don't sleep worth a rip. So I would just say he slept like an exhausted seminary student. How's that sound? He slept like one of those. And uh, he could do so because of his confidence in his father. Because of his faith in his father to accomplish his work in his life. He knew that he was here to die. He knew that he would go to the cross. And he knew that his father would see to it that he accomplished the work that he had been given by his father. You know, it's funny, isn't it? These veteran seamen are terrified, but a carpenter from Nazareth is just sleeping right through the storm. Lottie Moon, Southern Baptist patron saint, said it so well. We are immortal until our work on earth is finished. Jesus knew that he had a work on earth to finish and that he, too, would not see death until it was the right time according to the promise and plan of his Father. He is indeed human apart from sin. Number three, humans panic when they lose faith in the one that they should trust. The latter part of verse 33 says, And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, to be fair, this is a normal human reaction, but it is not the spiritual response that you would expect from a group of men who have seen Jesus do all that he has already done and heard him say all that he has said. But no, they're in a panic. And so they they wake him up. And just like the captain in the story of Jonah, choose Jonah out for being asleep in the bottom of the boat, the disciples chew Jesus out and jump on him as well. Mark says they called him teacher. Matthew 8.25 says, Lord, and Mark or Luke 8.24 says, Master, Master. I suspect they said all of this, and probably being uh, sailors, even more, but I'm glad the more is not recorded in the Bible. Here, the, the, the authors of the Gospels record terms of respect and dignity, although the question that they fire in his direction is anything but respectful. Do you not care? That we are perishing. Don't you care? Wake up. We're dying. You're over there asleep. You don't give a rip, do you? They question his love. They question his concern. Of course, that's nothing or something you would never do, is it? Something I would never do. No, as I've read through this story now many, many times in preparation for our study tonight, I have too often seen myself in the disciples. They think Jesus is indifferent. 
They think Jesus doesn't care. They think Jesus is not paying attention. Ever felt that way? Things in your life just seem to be coming unglued, falling apart, going to hell in a handbasket. And it's like, well, God, where are you? I don't even hear you. You're, you're silent. Aaron I'm Judson, when he had buried his wife and a number of children, said, I believe in you, but I don't know you. I don't hear you. I don't see you. And the fact of the matter is, even those who are sold out to Jesus can sometimes be overwhelmed by the circumstances of life that will cause them in an act of desperation and unbelief to, to burst out rudely and to exhibit no faith whatsoever in spite of the fact that he has shown himself to be trustworthy over and over and over again. I like what the Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said. I thought it fits so well in this particular story. God is too wise to err. And he is too good to be unkind. So leave off doubting him and begin to trust him. For in so doing, you will put a crown on his head. And so isn't it the case that Mark is challenging us to crown him in faith and not doubt him in unbelief? Yes, humans panic when they lose faith in the one that they should trust. But now lesson number four. Jesus has authority over nature. Why? Because he is God. The Bible teaches that God and God alone is what I call thrice omni. He is omniscient. He knows all things, actual and potential. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere present through the Spirit. And he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He can do anything. And so Jesus is awakened from his sleep, uh, having been disturbed by the disciples. And with gracious humility, he immediately stands up and he doesn't rebuke or chasten the disciples for their unbelief, at least not yet, but rather in a simple, non-elaborate and non-magical way. You see, there are wonder stories in the ancient world of those who allegedly could handle and engage nature, but they would go through these elaborate, magical incantations. No, there's nothing like that at all. He simply rebukes the wind and says to the sea, peace, be still. Now, some interesting observations here very quickly. The word rebuke could be translated censor. And here's what's really interesting. And I raised the question, just raised the question. It is the same word that is used in Mark 1.25 and Mark 3.12 when Jesus rebuked the demons. So I have a question. Could this storm have been demonically instigated? The text doesn't say it, but it is interesting that that is the word that you find here in this story. And it is true that in the ancient world, they often equated storms like this with demonic activity. And so I'm just raising the question in light of his rebuking of the sea. And in essence, he personifies the water. He speaks to the sea like he's speaking to a, a person. And he rebukes the sea like he rebuked. The demon, so it's at least something worth considering. The word be still carries the idea of be muzzled. And it's a perfect imperative, which means imperative, word of command, perfect tense. I'm commanding you to do something that will remain. So in essence, he's saying be still and stay still. And of course, what we read is what we would expect. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. 
In other words, because the master had spoken, the wind and the waves obey immediately. Now, folks, any way you slice it, if you can stop a storm and you can stop the winds, you're God. No man can pull that off. No woman can pull that off. No one can magically cause something like that to happen. And furthermore, hurricane winds are stopped with a single word. There's no struggle. There's no debate. There's no difficulty. As one man said, a mega calm suddenly overcomes the mega storm and everything is peaceful. Everything is tranquil. Everything is back to normal. And only God could do this. And therefore, what's the conclusion? Jesus then must be God, which again is what I believe the whole story is driving us to conclude, as we will see at the end in verse 41. Step number five, or lesson number five. Trials and difficulties come for the benefit of our faith. Verse 40, Jesus now turns from speaking to the storm to speaking to the disciples. And his two questions do contain a rebuke, though it's a mild one. First question, why are you so afraid? Second question, have you still no faith? In other words, the storm was for the purpose of discipleship. The storm was for the purpose of teaching them a lesson that would increase their faith. And unfortunately, they failed and failed miserably. What they should know by now, they miss. What they should have comprehended by now, they come up short. Again, it's interesting that the story all the way through is told not from the perspective of Jesus, but from the perspective of the disciples. They have taken Jesus with them, verse 36. They've raised him from his sleep, verse 38. They're afraid and lacking in faith, verse 40. And then they are perplexed about who this person is in verse 41. So in the eye of the storm, the disciples accuse Jesus of forsaking them rather than trusting him. And not surprisingly and unfortunately, this will not be the last time Jesus will question their lack of faith. I've noted for you in your notes. They will do it again in chapter 7, verse 18. Uh, again in chapter 8, verse 17. Again in chapter 8, verse 21. Again in chapter 8, verse 33. And again in chapter 9, verse 9. Here's the bottom line. Until they see the resurrected Jesus, all this will just really not truly come together. They, they'll be struggling with it. Uh, they'll sometimes get it right and other times get it wrong. Peter will say in one breath, you are the Christ. And then just a few moments later, he will say, but you will not go to the cross. And he gets rebuked by Jesus like he is a demon-possessed man. And so they're back and forth, up and down, struggling all the way through until the cross and the resurrection. Now, here's my point for us tonight. We don't have that excuse. We do not have that excuse. Having the full revelation of God's Word, we know He's God. We know He's all-powerful. We know He's all-knowing. We know He's taking care of our sin. We know He rose from the dead. So you're telling me He can't be trusted in a storm like this? And the answer is, well, of course He can be trusted in the storm and in every other situation as well. Why are you still afraid? Do you still have no faith? Finally, lesson number six. The identity of Jesus is an issue we all must settle. The story ends, interestingly, not with Jesus asking a question, but with the disciples asking a question. They were filled, verse 41, with great fear. Now, just stop right there. What were they afraid of earlier? A storm. Now they're afraid of God in the boat, which, by the way, I will commend them for that. 
If God was in my boat, I'd be scared too. So like some of these nutty people who say, you know, I want to see God. I wish God would show up when I'm shaving in the morning. I do not want God to show up when I'm shaving in the morning. I'd cut my throat. I don't know about you, but if I looked over there and there was Jesus, I'd probably slit my throat. So, no, I don't need him to show up like that. But I will acknowledge that if he did, I, too, would probably be very uh, unsettled and probably very fearful. And so it's funny. The storm is not in the water anymore. Now the storm is in the boat. It's one thing to be terrified by a storm on the sea, but as one man said, it's another thing to be terrified by God in your boat. The text says, look at it, they were filled not just with fear, they were filled with great fear. In other words, they were afraid of what Jesus had done. And what had he done? He'd saved their lives. He'd calmed the storm. And so the presence of God suddenly is far more fearful and far more frightening to them than the most destructive forces of nature. And by the way, again, that is good insight. One can take your life, the storm. The other, God, can take your soul. I would argue it is better to be afraid of God than the storm. So the text concludes with this question on the lips of the disciples. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You would think by now that they would know the answer, but unfortunately, they still don't get it. The demons do, but they don't. Interestingly, this is the first of three boat scenes in Mark's gospel. We're going to see two others soon, one in chapter 6, verses 45 through 52, and then a third one in chapter 8, verses 14 through 21. And all three boat scenes have kind of a common pattern. Each is associated with a miracle. Each is a challenge to understand and settle the identity of Jesus And each is adequate for them to draw the conclusion we must draw as well. Going back to the thesis statement of the book in chapter 1 and verse 1, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. There was a famous atheist who died 40 years ago by the name of Bertrand Russell. He wrote a book entitled, Why I'm Not a Christian. And Bertrand Russell was asked on one occasion, uh, what if you die and find out that you're wrong? What will you do? When you stand before God, Bertrand Russell answered rather arrogantly, I will look God in the face and say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. I would submit to you in light of a story like this one, that excuse will not fly. That answer will not get him a pass and it will not save him. No, the evidence is there. The evidence is in And the evidence is overwhelming. Who is this one that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, the demons tell you in chapter 5, verse 7, you are Jesus, son of the most high God. As we close, I think it is interesting to note that there are some parallels, as I alluded to earlier, between the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus calming the sea. And in many ways, that should not surprise us. Because in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, Jesus, in essence, refers to himself as the true Jonah. And he is. As Tim Keller has said better than I, he is the true Jonah who was consumed by the stormy sea of God's wrath as he hung on the cross. He endured the storm so that we could find peace and calm and be saved. Jesus calmed the only storm that could truly sink and drown us, the storm of God's wrath and judgment. 
So he went down into the storm only to emerge three days later as the one who stilled the just and righteous wrath of God against sinners. Therefore, if he took care of that storm, this divine man can certainly be trusted to handle any other storm that we may ever encounter. Who then is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? Playfully, I say, ask the demons. They know. The fact is, we can know too. And the fact is, we should trust him no matter what comes our way. He has proven that he is worthy of our faith anytime, any place, and under any circumstances. Let's pray together. Father, I love this story. There are parts of it that are funny. And there are other parts of it that are very convicting. And yet there's other aspects of it that bring such confidence and such joy to my life because you are indeed the God who can calm the storm and still the waves and the wind. You're the God of the universe, the God of creation, the God who can handle anything with just the spoken word. And for that, I praise you and thank you. And, Lord, I do see myself in the disciples. In light of all that you have done for me over these 54 years of my life, there's still those occasions when I am fearful. There's still those occasions when I show little, if any, faith. And, Lord, forgive me, because a God who loves us enough to die on the cross, a God who can walk on the water and calm the sea, raise the dead, heal the disease, is a God worthy of our praise, worthy of our faith, and worthy of our trust, no matter what may come our way. And, Lord, there may be some of my brothers and sisters here tonight who are going through a storm, who are going through a difficulty. I pray that they will find you adequate. No, Lord. I pray that they will find you more than sufficient for whatever it is they need at this time. You've proven yourself to be faithful. May we then flee to you, knowing that if we're not saved by you, we will not be saved. We pray this then in your strong and wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.